Today is November 3rd, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is David Perkel, who is a professor of biology and otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the University of Washington in Seattle. Hi, David. Hello. His lab studies the neural mechanisms that mediate song learning and song behavior in songbirds using a variety of electrophysiological and anatomical and behavioral approaches. I have a frog in my mouth apparently today, um, as you'll hear in a bit. So around the room, we've got a small group. We've got Michael Ferris. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi there. So I want to start with anatomy. Um, so there's a case to be made from a number of different vantage points uh, about the deep homology of the avian song system to the basal ganglia and therefore its relevance to mammalian systems. Uh, I don't know that you and Michael originated the idea, but you certainly um, did a lot to sort of progress the idea with a series of important papers in the 2000s that carefully um, mapped the avian song system onto a, a basal ganglia frame of reference. So could you guys talk to us about that work and, and framing the idea that the avian system, the song system, is a powerful model for complex learned behaviors uh, in mammalian systems? Well, I think the initial credit really goes to Harvey Carton, mm -hmm. who in the 1970s determined that um, the avian brain had basal ganglia. He was mostly working on pigeons, um, which are not songbirds. And so I think the the foundation was there a long time ago for recognizing that birds and mammals have fundamentally similar brain architectures. Would you agree with that, Michael? Yes. Well, I mean, originally people thought that the bird brain was all basal ganglia, right? That was before Harvey Carton came along, uh, since there was nothing that looked like a laminar cortex. Um, people just thought that it's basically solid, little, large areas of solid gray matter that uh, look like basal ganglia. Uh, that that must be what it is, and that and over the course of evolution, you know, mammals being more advanced, they had this more advanced cortex slapped on top of this older basal ganglia that we share because you know things were added sequentially. And Harvey's great uh, contribution, I think, was to recognize that only a small part of that was actually basal ganglia, and that uh, things dorsal of that were, even though they didn't look like cortex, they were more like cortex than basal ganglia. And I think the initial data that he used was uh, were from staining with cholinesterase, one of the early um, neurochemical stains that came out in the 1970s. And he recognized that the patterns of staining in mammals and birds were largely similar, and that really caused the, his insight to, 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 and his, his drive to push this similarity. And then there was a renaming, right? Mm -hmm. There was some kind of conference. Well, well, Major, things got, the avian brain known for The paper was published in 2004. Um, they came out of that meeting, but... Well, I thought well, there was one before that. So things no. continued to be called hyperstriatum and all that kind yes. of stuff until 2004? Yep. Yeah, it was a big source of confusion because right. like the a lot of the song, uh, song system nuclei are in this thing that was called neostriatum, which is uh -huh. like you know directly uh, the name of... Uh, something in the mammals that's not at all like what these structures were. So that wasn't just a strange name. It was an actively misleading name. Right. Yeah. right. And so Tony Reiner um, was influential in the 80s and 90s in adding clarification to this and speaking to, started speaking with people working on songbirds. Songbirds have these 
subnuclei that fit into these different parts of the avian brain. One of them is within the what we now call the avian uh, striatum. Um, it's the region called area X. And started pushing for the songbird people to, to, to recognize that this area X was part of the basal ganglia. Um, and a couple of labs did pick up on this. I think um, Sarah Botcher's lab and um, Alison Dope's lab had an early insight um, along with, with, with Michael in my lab about, about um, the idea that, that this was part of the basal ganglia. I think our initial take was if it's part of the basal ganglia and basal ganglia projection neurons are GABAergic, then suddenly the circuit has an unexpected inhibitory or minus sign in it, and we decided we would try to pursue pursue that. So the first experiment we did, just to see whether this was in fact part of the basal ganglia or just an island of tissue located within the basal ganglia, which looks kind of like a straw man now, but it wasn't, I think, at the time, uh, was to test whether the output from area X is in fact GABAergic. We initially took a an immunohistochemical approach by staining that pathway and asking whether it expresses the enzyme that makes GABA, glutamic acid decarboxylase, and it in fact does. And then we asked in uh, brain slices of the target structure, DLM, whether the synapses are GABAergic, and they made big IPSPs. And so we concluded that it in fact was a, a GABAergic projection, and um, that was certainly consistent with the hypothesis that it was a basal ganglia structure. So can you remind us of the homology at the various levels of the pathway? So the, the learning pathway, let's start with the learning pathway. So area X lies within a portion of the basal ganglia, and um, we now think that that corresponds to the striatum and to the yeah. globus pallidus neurons, but they're intermingled rather than being segregated as they are in mammals. And area X then projects to a nucleus called DLM, which is in the thalamus. I think we have to be careful um, and not just assume that it's motor thalamus, because it's not the traditional motor thalamus. In fact, uh, Tony Reiner's work suggests that it's maybe part of the intralaminar or higher-order thalamic circuits. And I think that's that's certainly the, the best guess at this point, but I'm not sure it's entirely established. DLM, in turn, projects back into the pallium, the cortex-like region that's overlying the basal ganglia, to a structure called LMAN, a lateral magnocellular nucleus of the anterior nidopallium. And it has that for a mouthful. It came out of the, the nomenclature. And then LMAN, in turn, projects back to RA in, in the descending motor pathway, another cortex-like structure. So you've, uh, you've shown that, that this pathway that you just talked about has an intrinsic noise-generating system um, that yields a surprising amount of variability in the, motor, in the song output. Um, I should interrupt there. The, the evidence that sorry. it is generating variability yeah. comes from two other labs. I'm always um, attributing things wrongly. <laughs> okay, so, so thank yeah. you for the correction. In adults and in juveniles, comes from the work comes from different labs. But. Okay, great. So what can you just tell us just quickly? What purpose does motor variability serve in song learning, and is it is it only relevant during learning? And then tell us a little bit about what you found about how the circuit generates this variability. We don't really have a clear idea, a clear 
clear evidence for what role this motor variability plays. One plausible hypothesis is that it's important for helping the animal explore motor space, that is, to try to make different sounds, from which it then selects the good ones, the ones that sound like its tutor song, in juveniles. Um, that hasn't been tested. To test it, one would have to block that and see if the animal can learn. And superficially, a test is lesioning LMAN, and that blocks learning. It diminishes the learning ability. Does that mean that it's the motor variability or some other role for LMAN? It doesn't distinguish. So I think we don't, we don't really know. In adults, the residual variability that occurs when the animal is singing alone could well be um, serve some sort of practice role, retuning, keeping the animal in, in top shape. But again, we don't know how to block that selectively for a long enough period of time, that, that variability, to be able to test that question directly. So I think but there know. is some behavioral relevance to the variability of output, for example, with the uh, courtship. A female will can distinguish between her mates or another individual's directed and undirected song. And it's likely that part of that is the variability, but it, there are some other aspects as... Um, Todd Troyer has been involved in, in, in analyzing, there's also a speed up of the tempo of song. And so it could be that that's the cue that the female picks up on. So to be completely fair, we don't know for sure that the female is using the variability uh, or lack of variability to, to pick up on her, her mate's directed song. I think also when you're thinking about what the role of variability is in adults, you have to remember that uh, what we're talking about is one species of songbird, uh, zebra finches, which um, are not do not exhibit any significant vocal plasticity unless you, as adults, unless you do some sort of manipulation. But not all songbirds are like that, and uh, zebra finches, you know, inherited their uh, their song system from common ancestors of songbirds, and so it's possible that some of these features, like variability in adults, are kind of like the zebra finches' appendix. You know, they. They serve functions in other songbirds, but not necessarily in zebra finches. It's certainly at least a possibility. Yeah, I agree. So I, I, I don't want to shy away from all the important functional stuff, but I'd kind of like to get back to some of the structural things. Okay. So if I look at a, I look at a, bird, a section through a bird's brain, it's, to me, used to mammalian brain, it's a little bit unfamiliar. So once I've seen where the stridum sort of is, that helps me to orient. But all of the stuff that's called cortex-like doesn't look all that much like cortex superficially. So, for example, I'm used to cortical, uh, cortical architecture with cells in different layers and their dendrites crossing uh, the layers and synapses coming in in layers and all that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, you know, the... These parts of the brain are like the cortex in some ways. Connectionally, they are similar to the cortex. They have projections of the thalamus that are like cortex, or they have projections of the striatum that are like what the cortex has. They're maybe functionally a little bit, like they have electrical properties that are similar to cortical pyramidal cells and inner neurons, I guess. Is that 
Is that right? But what's what is the what's the defining feature of the cortex? What is the most important thing about cortex? Seems to me I don't know a a bad question to ask. It's a kind of hard question, but it looks to me as though it's saying that is an opportunity to define the things about the cortex that we think are the functionally important parts. And maybe it turns out that the shape of the pyramidal cell and the way that dendrites go into layers and everything like that may not be it, because that's not there in the bird, but the bird seems to do fine. So you're opening up lots and lots of topics. I think for many people it's fair to say that the defining features of cortex are presence of pyramidal cells organized in layers with some other kinds of cells as well that have a, a sort of modular structure across the whole cortical surface. Would that be a fair starting point? I think it's a fair starting point. Right. So then the question is, what would you expect to see in, in a bird potential homologue of cortex? And I think you have people with different opinions. I'm going to duck a final opinion. But I'm going to outline some of the evidence that, that has been put out there. So, for example, one set of cortical layers, layer four, uh, seems to be an input layer, in, at least in sensory portions of cortex. And Harvey Carton has evidence that and work from other people that certain regions of thalamorecipient pallium, bird pallium, this cortex-like area, have cells that are, have certain neurochemical and local circuit properties that make them look like layer 4 neurons. There's a, an auditory recipient region, there's a somatosensory and a visual recipient region that have small neurons that, that could well pass for layer 4 neurons. And there's some emerging molecular evidence that they express some of the same markers as layer 4 neurons. There's a region in the more caudal portion of the, uh, of the pallium, called the arcopallium, that has projections and some molecular features that suggest that those could be like layer 5 neurons. They are output neurons to the, to the brainstem and... Um, send some, have other, some other connections that, that, that make them similar to layer 5 neurons. What an exciting have... idea. I mean, it's an exciting idea to think that we could take the layers of the cortex, rip them apart from each other, make nuclei out of them, and then make the appropriate connections between them, and they would function pretty well. It seems like a very cool idea. It's a cool idea. Whether all of those connections are really similar, I think, is unknown and maybe even unlikely to be identical. To, they'd be identical to what we see in, in mammals. Um, but I think it's a fair representation of, of Carton's idea that you would have particular cell types that, instead of forming layers, are in separate separate areas and ultimately lead to helping the animal solve some of the same problems. And I think it is clear that birds are smarter than we they've been given credit for, and they can solve lots of problems, and you, you don't need a cortex to do some things that, that are pretty sophisticated. So I wonder um, about the development, because the, the cortical layers have this very well-publicized uh, order of development, and uh, is there some 
evidence about the development of the bird that would show some commonality with that? Not I'm not? unaware of, of that. What, what is clear is that the GABAergic interneurons that are in the bird pallium, just as GABAergic interneurons of mammalian cortex, are born in the basal ganglia and migrate up during development. Um, and so I think I think there are some. I think it would be reasonable to expect that there are similarities in the GABAergic interneuron cell types, although they haven't been looked at in gray electrophysiological detail um, in comparison to the mammalian cohort of those cells. But that would be an interesting set of comparisons. The, the skeptic would say, ah, but those are cells that are born in the basal ganglia. Of course they're homologous um, in, in between birds and mammals. Um, what's left is, is the pallium. And I think I, I think there's um, there are clearly some superficial differences, and what we will need is a much better understanding of the molecular determinants of development in in birds, so that we can compare with them with those in mammals. It just seems to me that the enthusiasm for uh, you know working out some like the development of the projection cells in the bird brain and everything doesn't quite match the potential for understanding the, the importance of cortical structure. It seems like it's a huge opportunity to sort out what is required to make a functioning cortex that's, that just doesn't elicit the level of excitement that I would expect it to. That may be because it's mainly a, a negative influence. So, I mean, there's an alternative hypothesis about what a lot of these cortex-like regions are, what the relationship is to cortex, which is that you know they may be homologous to parts of the mammalian pallium that are not cortical. But whether or not it's like a profoundly reorganized cortex that's still homologous or if it's like a different part of the pallium that's more related to the amygdala, whichever way you have it, it's definitely uh, organized very differently. So all the things that you, like, you can look at cortical structure and speculate on how important this or that feature is, and most of those features have been thrown away in this part of the of the bird brain. So, I mean, maybe it's not so... So name one of those features. So just the um, the so-called columnar organization where you have uh, primal neurons that send these uh, ascending primal dendrites that, you know, that are apical dendrites rather that are supposed to be important for organizing cor- cortex to perform its canonical cor- uh, cortical computations. And... In a, in a column or a right. module yeah. of that's cortex. What, that's the missing piece that I think right. is... I mean, we really don't know that that's a functionally terribly right. important part of cortex. We look at the cortex and we see this so structurally prominent feature that you think, oh my gosh, it must be functionally prominent too. But but to be fair, R.V. Carton and Yuan Wang recently published a PNAS paper that showed columnar-like organization in a local circuit of a, of, of, of a region that receives auditory input from the thalamus. So they've argued that they have evidence for a laminar organization, I wouldn't say columnar, but a laminar organization of local microcircuitry in a way that they, I think, needs to be looked at in much more detail, but is suggestive of, of a structure that's sort of like a, a, a cortical organization. So I, I think people are starting to do that, and I think there's room, but I do think there's a lot more room for 
for analysis. But I didn't want to take you guys away from the basal ganglia because I know that's uh, the part that that we want to talk about. But uh, it seems to me, I just thought that the cortical uh, issue is is such a cool one. Well, I think there, there are other areas of the bird brain. There's at least one area where it wouldn't be so controversial that there's a cortex-like area, and that's this area that's in the dorsal nose, sort of rostral area called the Wulst. Right. I think that's actually the causes the most trouble with the, the everything is cortex hypothesis because that place actually looks a lot more like cortex than these other parts of the bird pallium. And it all seems to be there. Like, it's, you know, from its caudal to rostral extent, it seems like it has all the basic, at least in the rostral caudal dimension, all the basic parts of cortex. You know, the caudal part receives visual input, the rostral part um, receives somatosensory input and has projections down to the spinal cord and uh, is reciprocally connected with the hypothalamus, which is kind of like prefrontal cortex if you waved your hands fast enough. And so, you know, all the, at least on that, that axis, everything seems to be there. And so then you've got all this other extra stuff that doesn't seem to be required to, to sort of map cortex onto some part of the avian brain. I think that's kind of troubling. So then I wanted to, the reason for even bringing this up is really the sort of L man. Because it isn't a basal ganglia structure. Right. But most of what is said about what the basal ganglia do in birdsong is based on what Elman is doing. Uh, is that not true? Is that not a that, fair that, that assumption? That is true, and Instead. there are papers that have been published that are entirely about Elman, and yet the term basal ganglia is in their title. <laughs> <laughs> Without mentioning any particular paper. So, uh, of I've course, probably done it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the rationale. The rationale is that that's, Drives you know, it's, right. yeah, basal ganglia is having its influence by way of that thing. But what what part of cortex is that? I mean, uh, what should, I mean, we can say there's a motor part of cortex, there's a sensory part of cortex. What part of cortex is <coughs> man? I mean... Um. It's not. There's not really a clear analog because, as as you know, a lot of um, you know, the connections between the basal ganglia and the cortex seem to like follow this in mammals. Seem to follow this repeated pattern wherever, whether you happen to be in motor cortex or association cortex or prefrontal cortex. And um, there's no. Uh, I, I guess you would ha- if you were going to extend Harvey Carton's uh, attitude towards you know. Certain area, distinct areas being like layer four, certain distinct areas being like layer five, and you would want to assign something like Elman to a layer. Um, two, three. Two, three. But, um, <laughs> because I, six would have to project to the thalamus. Yes. Yeah. That's all that's left. And so it is like the cor- a bunch of cortical cortical cells, because the main. It makes a cortical projection. Is to, is, to exactly. is to RA. Right. I mean, it doesn't totally fit, because then you would want your. Um, maybe your layer five cells to mainly talk to other parts of bird cortex via this layer two three. That doesn't seem to be the case. But this, where if you know, Elman also doesn't necessarily is just one nucleus within a, this larger structure, and we don't know so much about that larger structure. We we focus so much on Elman, so maybe Elman has thrown away a lot of connections that are found in this broader area. Yeah, well, I think the song system has suffered for a long time from its one of its great strengths, which is that it's very discreet. 
and it stands out from the rest of the brain, and we look at it at these structures as we collectively as as islands floating in the sea of useless tissue. <laughs> and the in rest. fact, and, the right, rest. the rest. And in in fact, it's it's not useless. It's important, but it's been understudied. And I think the field is emerging from this tendency. Um, it's clear that there's a region around L-man. L-man itself is now called L-man core by some people, surrounded by a shell that has projections to an area near RA. We've known that anatomically for quite some time. Sarah Botcher has now nicely shown that there are some very important functional deficits when you lesion the shell. And so, with respect to, to song, and so I think we're starting to open our eyes a little bit collectively to look at these areas around and study them more. And so we we will be learning more, but we just don't know that much at this point about exactly what's what. One of the uh, I'm sorry, but I just have a whole lot no. of things in my mind about this. But one of the ways that we differentiate parts of cortex is sort of whether they receive a dopamine input. So the X gets a nice, hefty dopamine innervation. Do any of these other structures in the birdsong system, pallial structures, get dopamine innervation on that? Or? So the first part of the answer is area X and all of the surrounding basal ganglia receive a very, very dense dopaminergic input from the substantia nigra VTA midbrain dopamine neurons. And it's slightly more dense in, in area X than surround, but it's very, very similar. And it's much, 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 much lighter staining or projection in the, in the pallium as a whole. But there are not pallial regions that stand out. As there, there are, actually. There are. Um, and there is a line of research that was interested in identifying the avian prefrontal cortex equivalent um, based on that dopamine innervation. As it turns out, um, the at least the region that uh, at least this particular group selected as most likely to be like prefrontal cortex based on dopamine innervation is a region that's in the caudal part of the bird brain. And it is also... Uh, it is a part that contains HVC in a songbird. So HVC is a specialized subregion of this larger domain that receives rel- that receives heavier dopamine innervation by pallial standards, but still much less than anything uh-huh. that the basal game. So HVC gets. is part of the dopamine recipient cortex. Yes. Like. Mm-hmm. Right. And it does receive dopaminergic input. I'm not actually sure if you know, there are all of these regions are, you know, they're specialized subregions of uh, things that all birds have, but there are changes associated with that. And so in the case of HVC, um, it's, it's definitely lost some connections that the surrounding tissue has. And so it's possible that its relative density of dopamine input has gone down or up. And I actually don't know which it would be, if, if any. So I don't know if HVC has more or less dopamine innervation than you would expect just because it's a part of the structure. I I don't recall offhand what does stand out the region the pallial region that does stand out with tyrosine hydroxylase immunostaining is a region called NIF nucleus interface which is a region that has auditory responses and projects to HVC and um, is part of the song system but it is highly has dense tyrosine hydroxylase immunoreactive fibers. Now, isn't that normally adrenergic or noradrenergic? The, um, 
the innervation of the it's, That's thought to be mostly noradrenergic, but I think it hasn't been entirely ruled out that there's some dopamine input as well. So you've been, uh, David, you've been working on the dopamine system in the songbird, which is another whole cool homology in itself. The dopamine neurons are located in the, you know, sort of similar place in the midbrain, and they are, is there a substantia nigra pars reticulata that associated with those dopamine neurons or Anything like that? There are, so the substantia nigra, as you know, partial reticulata has GABAergic neurons. In the songbird dopaminergic nucleus, which is really a single nucleus, we call it the substantia nigra slash VTA, um, there are two types of cells intermingled, the dopamine neurons and another class that we believe